Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to AOA. Thanks so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. We have new numbers from USDA to talk about with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. We have uh, the latest on the battle with Prop 12 in California. We hear from the National Pork Producers Council. The legal proceedings continue there. And uh, we have more reaction to USDA's plan to fund meat processing plants, get small plants going. We're going to talk with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about that. But we're going to start things off today with a look at the news. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report joins us. Jerry, thanks for being with us. Congress back in session. What are they working on? Most of all, they're working on infrastructure. Uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is determined to bring this bipartisan infrastructure bill to the Senate uh, floor this month before Congress goes out for its uh, August break. Uh, So they're, they're working on that, trying to figure out what they can agree on. And at the same time, he wants to bring uh, forward a budget measure which could lead to this other uh, solely Democratic package on re- uh, through reconciliation. Uh, that would fund what they call the human infrastructure side. Uh, so uh, we're expecting a busy month here. I still don't see resolution to either of these issues until the fall, but we expect, hope that there will be action in the Senate this month. How close are they? Well, the, the, <laughs> that is hard to say. Um, I would say they seem to have about, if assuming all the Democrats would go for the infrastructure package, um, they, uh, there you've got about, you know, you've got the 50 Democrats plus potentially the vice president. Uh, and then uh, there are five Republicans who are working on the uh, on the bill who seem to be solidly supporting it. Uh, and then there's another five or six Republicans uh, who are who have said they will support it, but they're wary about how they're going to pay for it. Uh, in other words, what uh, what funding mechanisms they would use. And so that is the that's the controversy today. There's supposed to be another Democratic meeting and possibly a meeting of both the Democrats and Republicans who are who are backing the bill. But they need to have 60 votes in the Senate in order to uh, proceed with it. And that means that you do have to get 10 Republicans, not just the five who are working on the bill, but five more to support it. What's the chances of getting one of these things done, but not the others? Well, the problem with that is that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that she wants both before she wants to bring them up in the House. Now, the reason the action is first in the Senate is that it's the Senate that's the difficult one. The the House is controlled by the Democrats, and therefore Pelosi can hopefully strong-arm her people into, uh, in, uh, into supporting it, even though the majority is small. But in the Senate, you, uh, you'd have to have uh, this, uh, the, for this package, it has to be bipartisan support. Uh, and so uh, the 
supposedly they've reached agreement pretty much on the hard stuff like the roads and the bridges and the ports. Um, I've heard they're having a hard time working on in, on the broadband section because they need accurate maps, and that's a question. How much money are you going to put into broadband? Where does the where where are the really needy areas? Uh, but uh, uh, I think they could come to agreement on what needs to be in the bill. There's a question of whether they can figure out how to pay for it. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's a big question. Are they working on anything else in Congress right now? Uh, not, I wouldn't say anything uh, serious. Now, on this reconciliation or this uh, b- budget resolution, there would be questions of what you know, what all is in that. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, Senator Stabenow would like more money for conservation programs at USDA. Uh, the Republicans are saying, oh, you can wait until the f- uh, farm bill. Um, there's also talk about putting in a provision there to make uh, 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 school meals permanently uh, free. That means that the federal government would pay for them rather than having uh, middle-class children pay for uh, most of the cost of their meals. Um, so those are a couple of provisions uh, that are uh, considered agriculture-related that are uh, potentially for the um, budget resolution and the reconciliation package. Uh, but we haven't got much detail on, on that yet. Any signs from the Biden administration that they want to do something with Trade Promotion Authority? Uh, is that just way down their list of uh, priorities? Uh, we just don't hear much about it. I think I think Trade Promotion Authority is way down their list of priorities and doing trade agreements. Now, Liz Truss, the uh, United Kingdom uh, um, uh, official in charge of trade policy, is in Washington this week, um, and uh, and also she's going to California to meet with Silicon Valley people. Um, uh, You know, in order to have an agreement with the UK, we'd have to have uh, Trade Promotion Authority. Uh, But even the Brits are now saying, well, that's going to be a few years down the line. So. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think trade promotion authority is a very high priority. I think the high priority is enforcement of the U.S. Mexico Canada agreement, and that in itself is a is a challenge. Uh, although the um, trade reps from those three countries seem to be making progress on that. Meanwhile, the president's been signing a lot of executive orders, uh, many of them certainly impacting agriculture. What's the reaction you're hearing? Uh, what I'm hearing is what I've always heard on these things. That the the important executive order here is the one on competition, to increase competition, uh, especially for the benefit of farmers. All the farm groups have said that they uh, uh, have a, they're enthusiastic about these executive orders and what they might do uh, to provide uh, more competition. So you might re- reduce the cost of inputs uh, and also give farmers more places to sell their products. And at the same time, you hear the the agribusiness groups like the North American Meat Meat Institute uh, and the uh, uh, Chicken Council and even the uh, Pork Council. They're all very wary of this government intervention. All right. So we will see where it goes, and uh, we're going to get more reaction here in just a moment. Good to talk with you, Jerry. Thanks a lot for keeping us up to date. Thank you. Always good to talk to you, and we'll see what else happens the rest of this month. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Jerry Hagstrom, 
with the Hagstrom Report. All right, coming up later, we'll get reaction to the WASDE Report and those numbers and some market outlook from Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. We also have coming up an update on the battle with Prop 12 in California. But up next, we're going to follow up on what we were just talking about with Jerry, reaction to the president's executive orders uh, pledging to address the corporate consolidation in U.S. agribusiness and uh, also USDA funding for small meat processing plants. We're going to talk with the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Director of Government Affairs and Market Regulatory Policy. Tanner Beamer joins us next right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined by Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. We've had some setbacks in the courts from the Supreme Court and Appellate Court on waivers and now on E15 year-round sales. The news isn't all bad. First, give us your assessment of where we're at after these rulings and your outlook for the industry now moving forward. You know, obviously very disappointed in these rulings, and they definitely are setbacks, but this battle is far from over. And the good news on the E15 ruling is this decision doesn't change anything for retailers who are currently selling E15 this summer. They don't have to do anything different for now. The D.C. Circuit essentially put a stay on its ruling. Again, the good news is we don't expect the court decision on E15 to have any impact on gallons sold this summer and the retailer's ability to sell E15 uh, through the middle of September. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, we have a lot to talk about with Tanner Beamer, National Cattlemen's Beef Association's Director of Government Affairs and Market Regulatory Policy. Tanner, thank you for joining us. Uh, the Secretary Vilsack announced USDA uh, planning spending money, funding uh, uh, small meat processing plants. What's your reaction to that? You know, that was a really good announcement that we thought came out of USDA. And you're right, there is a lot of money to go around uh, under the announcement that Secretary Vilsack made from Council Bluffs, Iowa, last Friday. Uh, We were really pleased to see uh, USDA committing to allocate $500 million under the Build Back Better initiative to um, new entrants into the meat and poultry processing sector, specifically on the beef side. You know, one of the reasons why we've seen such disparate price spreads between fed cattle prices and box beef prices in the aftermath of, say, the Holcomb fire or during the COVID-19 pandemic is because there really is a situation now where cattle supplies are well in excess of processing capacity. And anytime you have a disruption at the processing sector, i.e. temporary plant closures for cyber attacks or uh, pandemics, it really accentuates the difference between the box beef or between the, the hook space and and the fed cattle supplies. And that creates a tremendous leverage problem for cattle producers in some of these fed cattle negotiations. And so there was a study done by Rabobank last September that found that the industry could economically accommodate roughly 5,700 hooks of new processing uh, capacity on a daily basis, which might not sound like much, but over the course of a year, that equates to somewhere in the ballpark of one and a half million head of cattle. Uh, So it was really encouraging to see uh, USDA investing in this, especially for processors uh, ranging from very small to mid-size, you know, think anywhere from 25 head a day to 1,500 head a day. That's just more hooks in the system, more resiliency to uh, whatever market disruptions that we can expect to see in the future. There's always a lot of um, uh, publicity around the, the big announcement, like last Friday, when the announcements made $500 million for new meat processing capacity. But then after the announcement, there comes the actual getting it done. Uh, and that can uh, get to kind of lengthy at times and a lot of details to work through. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, USDA is kind of beginning that process, right? And that's that's really the, the, the big question here, right, is how exactly are they going to go about getting the money where it needs to go, getting it into the hands of small businesses that want to construct a new packing facility? And then there, there were a host of other things announced in that uh, executive order from the White House and then USDA's subsequent announcement as well, things like dealing with the product of the USA labeling. Uh, it sounds like we may have, be revisiting 
revisiting the 2016 Obama rule on GYPSA and enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act. Um, and so we're going to be really paying attention throughout these, this process. This really was uh, the starting gun, if you will, as we begin what is not a sprint but more of a marathon. Uh, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for cattle producers to get their voice on the record on some of these big issues. Uh, and I think USDA is beginning that process with what we call a request for information, basically just soliciting feedback from the industry on how best to go about implementing uh, the president's executive order and then USDA's intent to uh, implement the specifics of that at their own agency. We're talking with Tanner Beamer with NCBA because Tanner, as you well know, uh, once the uh, excitement of the original announcement is made, comes out, then it Oftentimes, these things tend to bog down in the bureaucratic process. And as you said, the key is, does the money get to the right places, to the right people? Uh, so that's what you have to be very uh, very observant on, right? And, and keep pushing on that because sometimes it just kind of drifts away and you lose track of things if you don't stay on top of it. Exactly right, and this is this is a super high priority issue for NCBA. This issue of processing capacity, because it's part of a, a larger approach to uh, increase opportunities for profitability for our members, which our board of directors indicated at our last convention was one of our top policy priorities for 2021. And so, as we start to look for different ways to increase profitability opportunities in terms of negotiating leverage, like I said, adding more hooks to the system is the best way to ensure that cattle producers have more leverage in these conversations with packers and you can start to put some upward pressure on those fed cattle prices. But that's just one, one uh, element of a broader approach that involves market oversight, price transparency, uh, and price discovery as well. And so as we start to look at options that we can get on the ground as soon as possible, you know, we were really excited to see this commitment to funds. But you are absolutely right. It is going to require uh, steady attention, and you can uh, rest assured that we are going to be watching this very closely uh, and making sure that USDA is, is not uh, taking their sweet time and implementing this because the problem exists now, um, and that's one of the benefits of utilizing some of these leftover American Rescue Plan funds um, is that you don't have to have necessarily new congressional authorizations, which just add more time to the response on what is a very real problem in the here and now. Yeah, Secretary Vilsack said, uh, hopefully a year from now we can we can look at the you know definite results from this. So often these things get started, and you get a year down the road, and you look back and say, whatever happened to that? Whatever happened to the money? So that's what you got to make sure they stay on top of this, and uh, we actually see something come from it. Meanwhile, this product of USA label issue, um, well, we've been down this road before. How do you see it different this time? Well, you know, the product of the USA label effort is is actually a little bit different from some of the previous fights we've had on, say, mandatory country of origin labeling, right? As of right now, product of the USA is a generically approved label by the Food Safety Inspection Service, which means that the product does not have to undergo any source verification. As a matter of fact, imported product is eligible to bear that label in the grocery store, provided it is repackaged or passes through a USDA 
inspected facility once it arrives in the United States. And that, we think, has the potential to be very misleading for consumers who, if they were to read product of the USA on a beef package, would assume that that is entirely of U.S. origin when that may not be the case. So what we have proposed, and this is actually uh, very encouraging to see because it was about a month ago that NCBA filed a petition with the Food Safety Inspection Service asking them to do away with the product of the USA label. And if they need to have some sort of a, a generically approved label for use in the retail sector, that that should be a lot more descriptive and transparent with something more akin to processed in the U.S. That way, uh, it opens up opportunities for producers who see some value or the opportunity to capture additional value for animals that are actually of United States origin to pursue other voluntary means of labeling that that does have source verification that is required to have product differentiation. And they can do that through the Agricultural Marketing Services Process Verified programs. You know, those are currently in place for uh, certain state departments of agriculture use them just to identify uh, beef products of state origin. Um, a lot of the um, other programs like uh, non-hormone treated cattle undergo uh, process verified programs. So that infrastructure is already in place. But the generic application of that label in its current form is, is very misleading to consumers and we think that that needs to go away. So we were very encouraged to see such a rapid response from the Secretary and his team at USDA to our petition in having a full top-to-bottom revisitation of that label and its application in the market today. Is there a label, do you think, we can come up with a label that's going to satisfy uh, producers and packers and trading partners and consumers? You know, uh, I, I think that there is an opportunity for that, um, and that's really what we want to do from the NCBA perspective is make sure that we are leveling the playing field for producers that have an idea uh, on what that could look like to go and, you know, be able to uh, bring forth a PVP and get it approved through USDA, uh, find a supply chain with a packer and a retailer or some other way to bring that product to the consumer, but they need to be able to do it in a way that they're not undercut by, again, a generic approved label with no source verification or no other uh, needs to verify uh, the origin of the product. Um, and so that's what our focus is on. And I do believe that there are opportunities out there. Uh, it's just going to take uh, somebody who's uh, innovative and has an, the initiative to engage with packers and retailers and maybe even consumers to figure out what that needs to look like in order to present a real net return across the supply chain. All right, Tanner, we will be watching closely. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you. Tanner Beamer, NCBA's Director of Government Affairs and Market Regulatory Policy. So the administration taking a lot of steps here, initial steps, and I think getting a lot of people's hopes up that uh, some of these areas of concern will be addressed. Uh, now we need to see what the actions are that follow and what uh, kind of results we will see. But uh, there are at least a, a lot of focus on these issues now. We'll see where we go from here. Up next, a lot of focus on Prop 12 in California. We'll get the very latest on that from the National Pork Producers Council next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 
For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. In the weekly crop progress report, the weekly U.S. corn rating is up 1% to 65% in good to excellent condition with 26% silking. The weekly U.S. soybean rating is unchanged at 59% in good to excellent condition. For weather after rains midweek, forecasts are turning dry and hot for a majority of the Midwest, just as much of the Corn Belt will begin pollination. On the Board of Trade this morning, September corn trading two and a half cent higher at 547 and three quarters, the December contract up four at 537. For soybeans, August up 11 and a fraction at 14.15 and a half cent. The September contract up seven and a half cent at 13.65 and a quarter of a cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat September down three quarters at 6.39 and a half cent. The Kansas City wheat September contract trading a penny and a fraction lower at 6.14. Minneapolis spring wheat September up 11 and a fraction at 8.68 and a half cent. The December contract up 10 and a fraction at 8.53 and three quarters. For livestock in cash cattle country, it's slow to start this morning, but packer inquiry should improve as the day progresses. Asking prices are starting out at around $122 in the south, but are not yet established in the north. While we may see some business develop today, tomorrow seems more likely for significant trade volume. Beef cutouts are expected to be mixed with light to moderate box movement. August live cattle up 62 at 120.47. October down 12 at 125.67. For feeders, August down 42 at 157.72. The September contract down 50 at 160.50. For lean hogs, the August contract up 67 cents at 104.75. October up 67 at 88 even. In the outside markets, the Dow is down 42 points. The Nasdaq composite up 18. The S&P 500 down 1. The U.S. dollar index is is trending higher. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes. Go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station.
Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's get the latest on Prop 12 in California. Again, that uh, basically says if anyone uh, producing products like pork, uh, uh, what we're focusing on going into that market of California has to meet the production standards that uh, they set there in California. Uh, It's being challenged legally by the National Pork Producers Council and others. Uh, The last we talked with Michael Formica, Assistant Vice President and General Counsel for NPPC, was back during World Pork Expo last month, but some things have happened since, including some filings that uh, uh, the schedule called for. So, Michael, thank you for joining us. Bring us up to date. Where are we on this now? Hey, thanks for having me on again, Mike. Uh, so yeah, quickly we've got you know we've got a lot of action going on with California and Prop 12. Uh, folks may have heard that there was a the, the Supreme Court decided not to take up one of the one of the cases that was pending. Um, we you know we that's not such a surprise to us. And there's still our uh, NPPC Farm Bureau case that is out there. We expect to get a decision in that. Um, case maybe this week, maybe next week, but early on we had project we actually projected we would hear about this week. Um, the bigger the bigger news is that we had comments due to California this week on the implementation of Prop 12. So this is the uh, the the comment period as California tries to figure out what the rules look like for how to comply. These final rules should have come out September 1 of 2019. They only proposed them in May. Uh, their comments were uh, due to be received yesterday um, by uh, by CDFA in Sacramento. California is now going to take those comments. Um, there are there are some individuals in the uh, within the state government and you know and, and I assume some of the animal rights groups would like to see California quickly turn those around and finalize them. So they would have rules in place before the before the implementation date of Prop 12, December 31 of this year. Um, you know, we don't think that's possible. We are asking California again to delay the start of Prop 12 because they have failed to get these rules out in time. Uh, there are trade implications that they raise. There are real serious due process questions California is proposing that any truck that comes into the state carrying any pork product. So he's got a, a trucker comes in, he's got a load of bacon that he's going to bring to the grocery store. They're going to treat him as if they were the drug enforcement agency. California's proposed rules give them the right to go and stop that truck, to swarm around that truck, to open up the refrigerated component of that truck. And if they find non-Prop 12 labeled product, to seize and confiscate all of that product. It's like something out of Miami Vice is what they're contemplating here for bacon, right? This for bacon and ham uh, and pork chops. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, so we have, uh, we have raised problems with all of that. Uh, their proposed rules talk about 24 square feet. They don't talk about the much more difficult um, hurdle that farmers need to get over the uh, stand-up turnaround 
the lack of uh, and loss of breeding stall. We're asking for a lot more information on all of this. Um, we expect it's going to take them uh, many, many more months to uh, to turn around and respond to all the comments that they're receiving. And uh, again, like I said at the beginning, we are demanding that California give us at least another two years before this starts. Yeah, it doesn't even seem realistic to think you can make these kind of sweeping changes January 1st of next year. And here we are in July of this year, and uh, you're, they're still trying to, you know, put together the rules and, and, and how it would all work. I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic to think it could happen that quickly. They're, they're try, they're, they still don't know how to tie their shoes, and yet they want to go run a marathon. Um, it's, it, yes, it's, it's completely unrealistic. Uh, now we're, you know, we're hopeful we've got, we got, you know, we've got supporters within the California government who realize this. Um, unfortunately they're dealing with ballot initiatives. Like all of these ballot initiatives are, they're drafted by people who don't have the foggiest idea of what they're talking about. They're designed to turn us all into vegans. They don't want us eating meat. So the fact that the ballot initiative doesn't, doesn't work on its face uh, is irrelevant to them. But um, there are, you know, there are almost 40 million people in California and nearly all of them eat meat and m- nearly all of them love to eat pork. And so we, you know, we really think that, you know, the, the idea that California just isn't going to cut the supply of pork off to, to 40 million people. Um, it's, it's their protein, you know, it's their protein of choice. Everybody loves bacon. Everybody loves the pork chop. Everybody loves ribs. Um, and so we, we continue to put that pressure on them. Um, time will tell. Yeah. I, I often wonder, do the people in California realize the impact it's going to have on them? If they want pork, uh, the supply will be reduced. The prices will be higher. You know, so that's, that's a great point you raised there, Mike. There is, we are seeing some some increasing awareness. We have had um, we we have talked amongst agriculture about the cost that this is going to happen uh, that this is going to cause for farmers. Um, we we always allude to the fact uh, that it's going to cost consumers a lot. Um, but you know, recently there was a there was a group that came out uh, in California, the Food Equity Alliance. Uh, it's it's consumers in California. A lot of uh, a lot of small restaurants, a lot of uh, grocers in California. They did a press conference talking about the you know, significant price increases that this was going to cause for you know a- everyday average California consumers. How you know 60% increase in the price of bacon? Uh, it was going to be even higher than that for pork chops, uh, for ribs. What this was going to do to the availability of those products. And you know, then that that happened two or three weeks ago, and so we're seeing it, it's gotten some press attention there. We're beginning to see uh, on the ground in California uh, more of an awareness. Like I said, you know, this group has come out. Um, there's a lot of uh, Latinos in it. There are a lot. There's a, and there's huge uh, Hispanic Latino population in California. I think they're nearly 40 percent of the state. There's a large Asian population, and so you see in some of the Asian community, um, all all tremendous consumers of pork, um, start and ask questions of what you know, if you if you have a Chinese restaurant, how are you going to supply pork for all of your dishes? 
if you have uh, you know a, a Mexican restaurant, how are you going to get the pork for your carnitas? Um, if California has banned it, uh, you know all all of these restaurants are going to you know, they're, and they're coming out of coming out of the economic disaster of COVID. They're struggling even more now, uh, and so it, it's it's good to see these voices you know rising up and and you know reminds the state of California that it's not just farmers in the Midwest that are going to be impacted by this, but it's their own voters, their own their own neighbors. We're talking with Michael Formica with the National Pork Producers Council. Michael, you mentioned the the court ruling, the Supreme Court ruling, on the other legal challenge to Prop 12. Your challenge, along with Farm Bureau with you on this, uh, still waiting to hear, and you said maybe this week or next. Uh, does that ruling have any bearing on your ruling that you're waiting for, you think? Uh, no. Um, so I, I liken that attempt to... Um, you know, what what NAMI did was if if you, know, if you think about it in a, in football terms, you, the opening kickoff happens, you're at you know, you're at the and Aaron Rodgers decides he's going to play with the Packers again, and you're at the, you know gets the ball first play of the game at the 35 yard line, and that first play of the game he throws a hail mary. They're trying to get a quick score. And I think John Elway actually did that in the Super Bowl one year, um, you know maybe 30 years ago or so. It was when I was in high school seem to remember um sometimes that move works but more often it doesn't and so what nami did uh the the meat institute did is they they saw an injunction right off the bat uh, and tried knowing it would be denied and tried to appeal that up to the supreme court so they could get to the supreme court quickly um and i think i think their hope was you know that there was a there was a slight chance the supreme court would take the case um, but you know, realistically, there wasn't a great chance because of how the because of how the case came up to them. Um, our our case was developed in in a much different fashion, and it's coming to the Supreme Court. When it gets to the Supreme Court, it will have taken a much longer path there, um, and may you know making sure that every box that the Supreme Court wants checked off has been checked off uh and and frankly we're we're hoping we don't even need to go to the supreme court that we you know we might win this thing at the ninth circuit um that you know that that is still a very much possibility um you know every every everything that we have uh have predicted um from the get-go in this case was you know is turned out the way we expected it to so far um so we will uh you know we we will see. You know, you can you can never tell how a judge is going to come down, uh, and certainly can never can never really predict how. Uh, you know, well, maybe you can predict the Ninth Circuit. The way I think the Ninth Circuit would rule, um, oftentimes isn't how the Ninth Circuit rules, but um, the makeup of the court changes. The judges are all different, and so we're still feeling um, cautiously optimistic. All right, we'll see what happens, and when we get that ruling, we'll talk again. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Eat more bacon. Michael for Okay, Michael Formica, Assistant Vice President, General Counsel for the National Pork Producers Council. New WASDE numbers from USDA released yesterday. We'll go over those with Matt Bennett with AgMarket.net next on AOA.
Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Great numbers. What's behind them? Very exciting, actually. The momentum that we had in March and April continues in May. Broad-based growth across the whole spectrum for the most part. Uh, Beef set a record, uh, all-time record for the month, a little over $900 million exported uh, globally. But it was a combination of Korea, China, Japan, Taiwan, and and Mexico. So you had five or six uh, fairly prominent markets that all showed real uh, sustained uh, growth. So uh, that's exciting. And, of course, on the pork side, it wasn't a record, but it was the third largest month ever. So a very respectable month, um, about 284,000 metric tons. You know, the diversification into these other countries uh, is very important. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're joined by Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative, to share updates on the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Let's start by talking about this legislation, why it's so important to agriculture. The Growing Climate Solutions Act would instruct USDA to set up a greenhouse gas technical assistance provider and a third-party verifier certification program to help farmers, ranchers, and foresters participate in carbon credit trading markets. These programs would provide a USDA stamp of approval for qualified providers of technical assistance and verifiers that help landowners adopt voluntary practices that allow them to earn carbon credits, which can then be sold into carbon markets. 
Now, the bill got a lot of support in the Senate, didn't it? It did. Yeah, it passed a couple of weeks ago by a vote of 92 to 8. So obviously a ton of support, bipartisan support, and a level of support that we don't often see for standalone legislation these days, which was great to see. Do you see any big changes coming in the House as they take it up? Yeah, well, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, uh, Chairman Scott from Georgia, is keeping his cards pretty close to his vest right now. And the legislation that was introduced currently mirrors the Senate bill. But obviously, changes could be made as it goes through that House process. Right now, the biggest potholes that we need to kind of weave the bill around have to do with the more progressive wing of the Democrat Party, possibly wanting to see more progressive climate priorities introduced into this bill. That would obviously, if it happens, have an adverse uh, effect on the Republican support that it currently enjoys. So we'll see how it does in the House and keep a close watch on it. That's Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, compared to the last couple of uh, USDA reports, uh, the one uh, kicking off this week uh, was pretty quiet. Old crop corn and soybean ending stocks pretty much uh, stayed the same in the latest uh, WASD, the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Uh, corn ending stocks for the 2021 marketing year estimated at 1.08 billion bushels, down just slightly from uh, a month ago's 1.1 billion. And old crop soybean ending stocks estimated at 135 million bushels. That's the same as a month ago. So uh, not much change at all there. The focus is more and more on the the weekly crop conditions numbers and the weather reports and of course some areas are getting uh, much needed rainfall some of the areas that have been very dry have improved somewhat other areas uh, are looking pretty good but uh, we know some areas have some major major problems but uh, the focus no doubt on uh, weather right now and production new crop corn and soybean average yield estimates uh, stayed about the same new crop wheat yield estimates did drop from 50.7 bushels per acre last month to 45.8 bushels uh, this month. So um, not a lot of change in the, the numbers with the WASDA report out uh, yesterday. We were hoping to talk with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net, but um, Matt is tied up at the moment, so uh, we'll probably may not be able to get him today, but we'll check in with him and other market analysts moving forward as uh, we get more reaction to the WASD numbers yesterday and, and even more so the um, production estimates. going to be interesting uh, as here we are mid-July now and watching this weather closely and the problem areas and uh, the good areas. Do the good areas look like they're going to have good production? Is that going to make up for the areas that will be down? That's the big question uh, remains to be seen. So we'll get more reaction on that tomorrow. More reaction coming up tomorrow as well on these 
um, executive orders that the president is signing. We talked earlier with uh, Tanner Beamer with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, there's there's optimism. There is hope. There's also some concerns about uh, these executive orders the president is signing and uh, the move to use some of the funding available right now from different sources. Uh, we'll wind up using it for things like small meat processing plants. Um, there's hope that we'll see more diversity in that industry, something that producers have long wanted. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's a there's a big difference between a major announcement and everyone's excited, oh, money's going to be available, and then the actual distribution of that money and the process that you have to go through and the bureaucratic process can really get bogged down. So that's now the key to stay, keep a close watch on that and see what happens, what comes from this. Announcement's good and big and gets a lot of attention, but what actually happens now moving forward, that's what we're going to be watching closely and see where we go with that. Um, also the the question of the on the labeling issue. That's that's really a tough one because again we're looking for that label that best represents the product that's been hard to find. You get into that voluntary mandatory issue. You get into uh, trading partners complaints and uh, their um, We've we've lost that battle before in the in in the uh, with WTO and things like that. So there's a lot that goes into this, but at least it, they're looking at it, they're addressing it. But again, you can have an announcement that the government's going to we're going to take a look at this, but you got to see some action, you got to see some results. So starting a process, starting an investigation, that all sounds good and. And say we're going to listen to people we're going to invite people into the room and set them at the table and we're going to get their thoughts that's good too if you actually listen and then if you actually take what they say and and try to find that common ground hopefully there's some common ground that you can find and then put that into action and so often we see uh, with when governments involved so often we've seen the big announcement, we're going to do this, and then it bogs down. Hopefully that won't be the case this time, but uh, there's a long ways to go, and this will take a lot of twists and turns, and when the government's involved, there's red tape, so you got to cut through a lot of that. And uh, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic on it, but I am trying to be cautious on this because I've seen it happen so many times before where it sounds good at the outset, but the end result doesn't turn out to be quite as good as uh, the original hopes and the announcement kind of led you to believe. So we'll see what happens. Uh, these are big issues, complicated issues, controversial issues, emotional issues, and um, the government's going to step in and said we're going to try to address them. We shall see. Hopefully they can. Hopefully we can find uh, good solutions moving forward. But uh, it's been tried before, and we've come up short. We'll see if this time it will be different. Also interesting to see what happens with the infrastructure deal. I thought we got a good update from Jerry Hagstrom earlier in the program today. Um, you know, they're only in session, Congress only in session the rest of this month, and they're off again for the August recess. So can they actually get something done? You've got the traditional infrastructure. You've got the human infrastructure. you got all this, the politics that are involved in this too. And now they're 
trying to decide what can be done on broadband. So they've got a long ways to go. And we've been hearing, how long have we been hearing about we're going to get something done on, on infrastructure? For years, actually. And uh, perhaps this is as close as we've been in a while, but it sounds like they've still got quite a ways to go before they get this resolved as well. So there's a big difference between saying we're going to get something done and actually getting it done. And that's where we're at now, waiting to see what we actually get done. And while we're waiting to, we're waiting to see what EPA does, waiting for the announcement on RVO levels where they set the levels that need to be met, must be met for to meet the requirements of the renewable fuel standard. There are fears that those levels are going to be reduced. The biofuels industry would actually like to see them increased. So we're waiting to see if this EPA and this administration backs up its words of uh, commitment to the biofuels industry. We're waiting for that as well. Waiting for a lot, aren't we? Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk more about the markets. We'll talk more about these executive orders from the administration and how they impact agriculture. All that will be coming up tomorrow. Thank you for joining us today. Hope to talk with you again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.